Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. In May of 1980, four inmates on death row at a maximum security prison in Reedsville, Georgia, wrote a letter to President Jimmy Carter with an offer. Send us on a military mission to rescue the 52 American hostages being held in Iran. Quote, all four of us have discussed this proposition and we would rather go to our graves fighting for our country than sitting here and rotting in this hell, wrote Carl Isaacs. Isaacs was on death row for murdering a family of six in their home in 1973. The other inmates were Troy Gregg, Timothy McCorkadale, and David Jarrell. Despite being published in many newspapers around the country, President Jimmy Carter never replied to their letter. Two and a half months later, in the early morning hours of July 28, 1980, Carl Isaacs was still alive in Block A1 of the Georgia State Prison in Reedsville. One floor beneath him was his final destination, the state's electric chair. Or so the state thought. Because in the early morning hours of July 28th, Isaacs was not only alive in Block A1, he was outside of his cell and making his way through three sets of sawed-off bars toward an escape route he had planned and orchestrated for the last 10 years. He had help from four other inmates, sure, but Isaacs himself was the ringleader, the one they all owed for this chance, this opportunity to be free. As Isaacs made his way through the second set of cut bars to the route where the rest would be waiting, he heard a noise, a creaking, loud, metal clanging noise. He knew that noise, the elevator. It was coming to his floor. He was too close to his cell to avoid detection. It was night patrol. They would do their rounds and then he could backtrack. He could come back here after they left. He sprinted back to his cell and laid inside waiting for them to leave. Heavy boots echoed off the wall at his head and came to a stop outside of his cell. Isaacs, they said, it's time to go. Unbeknownst to Isaacs, his transfer to Georgia State Prison's Jackson facility had been rescheduled. He was not being transferred in two months, like he thought he was going today. Outside, in the parking lot of the prison, a car started. Four death row inmates, Wesley McCorkadale, Troy Gregg, Johnny Johnson, and David Gerald, had just committed the first ever successful death row prison escape in Georgia's history, though Isaacs would not be going with them. Half an hour later, Charles Postel, a reporter for the local newspaper, received a telephone call. We're out, the man on the other line said. An hour later, Postel called the prison directly to check if there had been an escape. The warden assured him that they had checked and there was no escape. Postel hung up, but then he called back and he told them to check again. Four hours after the four death row inmates walked out of Georgia State Prison, they checked again. All hell broke loose. Fast forward two days later, on June 30th, 1980, two teenagers went for a swim in the waters of South Carolina's Catawba River, 10 miles away from the Reedsville Prison. They came out with the badly beaten body of a man. This is the story of Troy Leon Gregg, the first person whose death sentence was upheld by the United States Supreme Court after the court's decision in Furman versus Georgia in 1972 invalidated all previously enacted death penalty laws in the United States. This story is about a hitchhiker, quite a lot of murderers, Georgia's love for the death penalty, a prison break, 
the oldest biker gang in the world. Yes, the world. And a guy who should have just shut the fuck up. Let's take it back to the 1970s. It was a big decade for the death penalty. Okay, she was popular. She was front and center. She was queen. The Supreme Court's quote-unquote death penalty cases all come from this era pretty much, okay? They were basically volleying the death penalty back and forth about what to do about it to themselves. The Supreme Court invalidated the death penalty completely in 1972. Some people don't know that, but they did. They had to ha- they had a tangle, they had a rumble, they had a wrestle with um, you know, the government not legally killing people. They had a moment. In Furman versus Georgia, William Henry Furman, a black man, was sentenced to death for the killing of William Mickey, a Caucasian male, during a botched burglary of Mickey's home. Furman appealed his death sentence to the Georgia Supreme Court and argued that Georgia's death penalty statute violated his constitutional rights because the statute lacked sentencing guidelines and it was administered in a racially discriminatory manner. After the Georgia Supreme Court rejected Furman's appeal, he appealed it all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court. Furman's case was consolidated with two additional cases, one from Georgia and another from Texas. Both cases involved black men sentenced to death for raping white women. The Supreme Court overturned all three defendants' death penalty sentences. In its holding, the court believed that the defendants had failed to prove their claims of racial bias, but they held five to four that the lack of statutorily defined sentencing guidelines for juries in capital murder cases violated the Eighth Amendment. The Eighth Amendment is generally our right to be free from any cruel and unusual punishment. And that is, of course, the main hoe, the main gal that everyone talks about when we talk about the death penalty. Because is, is death cruel and unusual or is it a gift? These are just jokes to try to make light. I'm sorry. Hate me now. Hate me later. According to the court in Furman, all existing death penalty statutes, both state and federal, were unconstitutional as applied because they failed to articulate to decision makers, aka the jury, any principled basis by which to distinguish the limited number of defendants sentenced to death from the thousands of other similarly situated defendants who were not subject to the death penalty and often sentenced to life, right? So essentially in Furman, the court said, look, you're kind of just drawing numbers from hats here about who's going to be kaput and who is just going to serve a life sentence. You need a standard. You need something, right? But of course, the result of that holding was that the death penalty was essentially moot, done nothing, because not a single federal state statute had this requirement that the Supreme Court said in Furman needed to be in there. So the practical consequence of the court's ruling in in Furman was that 558 death row inmates in the U.S. had their sentences commuted to life sentences, pretty much right there. At the time of the Furman decision, there were 43 individuals on death row in Georgia, 29 convicted of murder, 12 convicted of rape, and two convicted of armed robbery. Georgia responds immediately to this ruling in Furman in 1972, and Georgia says there will be blood. There will be blood. They immediately, and when I say they, I mean their legislature, immediately sprinted to I'm sure, a meeting room with coffee and donuts to draft a new death penalty statute legislation, something that would pass constitutional muster, okay? Something that's going to definitely, probably for sure, be appealed up to the Supreme Court, but maybe potentially, potentially, potentially could survive, which would mean that someone did not. We're doing puns now. It's getting worse. The coffee and donuts paid off and Georgia's legislature revised the death penalty statute in 1974. They included what's called a pre-sentencing hearing in which prosecutors were required to prove certain aggravating circumstances relating to the crime or the defendant. So 
When I say pre-sentencing hearing, I mean that this hearing would take place after you are convicted by a jury of the crime at hand. Okay. So murder, right? Capital punishment, murder. Okay. After you're already convicted, you're already frick, frack, patty, whack, you already lost, you took an L, there's going to be another hearing pre-sentencing in which the prosecutor has the burden to put on evidence if they want to seek the death penalty, okay? Put on evidence of these aggravating circumstances, okay? It may or may not be like, you know, some of the same evidence that was used to convict, all that, but it it's treated like a completely separate sitch, all right? This is how they're trying to escape by the unconstitutionality of the death penalty that was handed down literally the year prior how the fuck like how these legislators literally sprinted this fucking fast to get shit done they said oh we can't kill people everyone get everyone wake up get on your hop on your zoom hop on your fucking zoom because they passed this bitch in 1973 i think i said 1974 this bitch is literally called the night yeah no the 1973 georgia general assembly passed this bitch the Furman ruling was in 1972 they said we're putting our shoes on like this cannot stand. Y'all from the South, let me know. I feel like the consensus down there is let them up. But after this new statute was passed, okay, the new death penalty capital, capital punishment statute is passed. The way that obviously statutes, laws, anything um, are, are declared unconstitutional isn't like the Supreme Court just cherry picking bullshit in theory, okay? It needs to, it, something needs to happen. The statute needs to be applied to somebody and then they appeal it up. Okay, typically, especially in the criminal context, typically. All right. That was not every circumstance. Lawyers and law students don't bite my head off, but I'm just giving people context so they know what the vibes are. The very first case, okay, in which this statute was applied and the defendant appealed it saying, nah, bitch, I'm taking my chances. We're coming off a fat W with Furman. All right. I'm going to get my life back. Okay. First one was for a person named Troy Leon Gregg in 1974, a white man convicted of murdering two other white men in Georgia who had received four death sentences, one for each murder and one for each armed robbery. Once again, the Georgia Supreme Court held that the new death penalty statute was constitutional and affirmed his death sentences for the two murder counts, but not for the, not for the robbery. They were like, that's, that's too much. Two deaths is fine for a bit of a crowded room, I would think. Greg then appealed those sentences to the U.S. Supreme Court again within just a couple months, pretty much, having the Supreme Court deal with the shit again. Okay, 1974. Figure out the constitutionality of Georgia's death penalty statute, the new revised glow-up version. So let's get down to the facts of what Troy Leon Gregg actually did. Okay, let's let's get to know our boy. Let's get to know our man. Let's get to know our 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 fella. Um, he's not ours. I I don't. We're not claiming him. That's for sure. He's not mine. That's Honey P. But but this will give you some context. Um, this is upsetting. Trigger warning. I want to I want a new word, new phrase for the words trigger warning. Can we can we someone get on that? Can I say something else? that everyone will just know, right? Like new listeners even, instead of instead of trigger warning, I just want it to be like, oh no, I don't know. Come up with something. It's not going to be ka-chow because I feel like that's positive. What's the opposite of ka-chow? Ka-chow? Jesus Christ. From the top, Troy Leon Gregg was tried and convicted in the Superior Court of Gwinnett County for the murders and armed robberies of Fred Edward Simmons and Bob Derwood. The evidence which the state presented to prove guilt is that which follows. On Wednesday morning, November 21st, 1973, Troy Gregg, age 25, and a traveling companion, Floyd Allen, age 16, were hitchhiking north in Florida. They had only about $8 between them when they were given a ride by the above-named victims. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. About 240 miles north of Miami on the Florida Turnpike, their car broke down. A Florida State Highway patrolman accompanied Simmons and Moore to an automobile dealership where Simmons purchased a 1960 red and white Pontiac. Thereafter, they again went back, picked up Greg and Allen, and resumed their journey northward. On their route, both Simmons and Moore were seen in possession of large sums of money. At the intersection of I-10 and I-75 in North Florida, another hitchhiker, Dennis Weaver, was picked up. He rode with the group until he got out at the intersection of I-85 and Highway 23 in Atlanta, Georgia at approximately 11 p.m. that evening. Troy Gregg drove during the time that Weaver was in the car while Simmons and Moore did considerable drinking. No fighting words were exchanged by any of the men while he was present. 16-year-old Allen stated to a police detective, that at the intersection of Georgia Highway 20 and I-85 in Gwinnett County, Georgia, they stopped for a rest stop and Simmons and Moore got out. Greg turned around and told Allen to get out. Quote, we're going to rob them. Greg laid up in the car with a gun in his hand to get good aim, and as Simmons and Moore were coming back up the bank, he fired three shots. One of the men fell and the other staggered. Greg then circled around the back of the car and approached the two men, both of whom were then lying in a drainage ditch. Greg placed the gun to one's head and pulled the trigger, then went quickly to the other one, placed the gun to his head, and pulled the trigger again. Then he took their money and whatever contents were in their pockets, and he and 16-year-old Alan got in the car and they drove away. The bodies of Simmons and Moore were found in the drainage ditch. A medical examiner stated that death was caused by gunshot wounds, that Simmons had been shot in the right corner of the right eye in the region of the temple, and Moore had been shot once in the right cheek of the face and once in the rear of his head. On Friday morning, November 23, 1973, the hitchhiker Dennis Weaver went to an Atlanta restaurant for breakfast. While there, he noticed an article on the front page of an Atlanta newspaper that led him to call the Gwinnett County Police Department. He told them he thought Greg and Allen were going to Asheville, North Carolina. In response to a bulletin from Gwinnett County authorities, the Asheville police apprehended Greg driving Simmons's 1960 cherry red and white Pontiac at about 3 p.m. November 24, 1973. With him in the car were Allen and three other people. A 22 caliber automatic pistol was found in Greg's pocket. He also had approximately $107 in cash. Ballistics tests subsequently established that bullets from the gun in Greg's pocket caused the death of Simmons and the death of Moore. When asked if that was how it happened, he responded, quote, yes, it was. In rebuttal of defense evidence, the state established that when asked by an Asheville detective why he did it, Greg replied, quote, by God, I wanted them dead. So he sucks. He very much sucks. Greg, in his defense, testified that he and Alan were given a ride by Simmons and Moore, that throughout the trip, Simmons and Moore were drinking beer or whiskey, that when they stopped at the intersection of Georgia 20 and I-85, quote, Fred hit me on the left jaw and knocked me in the drainage ditch and I got back up and asked him to leave me alone, and he hit me the second time and knocked me back into the drainage ditch, and when I came out of the drainage ditch the second time, he came at me. I don't know what he had in his hand. It could have been a knife or pipe. I don't know what it was, but when he came at me the second time, I shot him. Greg swore on the stand that he was very scared, that he left there because he was scared and drove the car up I-85 until they got to Howard Johnson's and stayed all night, that he did not mean to kill either one of the victims and shot them to protect himself, that he had over $100 on him from by virtue of a cab driver, he bumped into repaying money owed him, and that the new clothing and equipment in his possession when he was apprehended were either bought by Allen, found in the motel room, or already owned by him. So I'm going to say what everyone's thinking. He he did it. He did it. Probs. Probably. I'm a defense attorney, so like, who knows? Allegedly. But like, this one wasn't alleged. This one was Jed. Do do with that information what you will. Okay? Come to your own conclusion. But regardless, your conclusion doesn't fucking matter because the jury convicted. Okay? On all motherfucking counts. Greg was sentenced to death, like I said, four times, four deaths, four kaputs, and then the Georgia Supreme Court said, okay, maybe make it two. 
right? Too many cooks in the kitchen, too many deaths on the doorstep. Let's just make it two death penalties for the two murders. Um, And he appealed it. Supreme Court said, let me have it. And Greg thought, I'm chilling. Look at Furman. We're good. We're Gucci. We're fresh. He was not. He was not. But what he would be was remembered, at least, um, for being the first one to get his shit rocked after Furman. Okay? All the other people serving life sentences, vibing. Okay? They're commuted death penalty sentences, commuted to life, period. They're vibing. They're living. They're great. Okay? The 500 or whatever. Greg was the unluckiest motherfucker of the bunch. If he wanted to really commit a double homicide, homicide, he should have done it in, I don't know, 71. But that's just me. In a 7-2 to two decision, the Supreme Court in Greg versus Georgia held that a punishment of death did not violate the 8th and 14th Amendments under all circumstances. So basically, what Furman was... Okay, was the Supreme Court very much explicitly stating and emphasizing in their opinion, look, listen, look and listen, just because we're saying that for these three defendants and Furman, the death penalty statutes applied were unconstitutional doesn't mean that the death penalty itself is. It means that the way that 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 shit happened, okay, the way they got their shit rocked is not kosher with the 8th and 14th Amendments. I almost said 11th, 14th Amendment. Okay. And I, you know, I could go into a whole con law class about the 8th and 14th snooze fest, snooze a lose, cruel and unusual punishment. You get the vibe, due process, you get the fucking vibe. Okay. You get the vibe. Y'all know enough. You've seen law and order. You're here now. Okay. Unless you just watch to see some chick with crazy eyes on YouTube. I mean, more power to you. Vibe. Google the 8th and 14th amendment. Love you so much. So the court affirmed, affirmed. Uh, fuck confirmed, did not overturn his conviction or death penalty sentence. They said that in extreme criminal cases, such as when a defendant has been convicted of deliberately killing another, the careful and judicious use of the death penalty may be appropriate if carefully employed. The carefully employed language for anyone who get, has ever tried to research death penalty shit, you're probably you're like, whoop, it's really like, it's everywhere now, okay? Carefully employed. Those are words. What do they mean? You tell nothing, really, right? It's just the law has so many phrases that to any other normal logical person, you're like carefully employed. Well, what does that mean to one person? What does that mean to the next person? And the Supreme Court says carefully employed, flings it down to all the courts in the nation and tells them to fucking apply it accordingly. And no one knows how the fuck to do that. So. There's that. Supreme Court in Gregg held that Georgia's death penalty statute assures the judicious and careful use of the death penalty by requiring a bifurcated proceeding where the trial and sentencing are conducted separately, specific jury findings as to the severity of the crime and the nature of the defendant, and a comparison of each capital sentence's circumstances with other similar, similar cases. Okay, those were the requirements that the new amendment to the Georgia statute, right, slipped in there. So the Georgia legislature, politicians with their donuts and their coffee and a fire under their ass said, we're killing people tonight, and they achieved. Congratulations. Um, Moreover, the Supreme Court was not prepared to overrule the Georgia legislature's finding that capital punishment serves as a, quote, useful deterrent to future capital crimes and an appropriate means of social retribution against its most serious offenders. So the death penalty in that case, meaning the death penalty statute in Georgia was upheld after it had been yeehawed in 1972. Um, so there was a four-year period where no one was could be sentenced to death in the U.S., fun fact. Didn't last long, but here we are now. The reason why the 70s were so like death penalty focused and centered, um, the reason, I don't know. Uh, I think the Supreme Court was just really jonesing for a morbid decade. Uh, Reg versus Georgia is one of five death penalty cases, quote unquote, uh, that took place in 1976. Some on the same motherfucking day, the, the opinions that were issued. Some 
of the death penalty sentences other than Greg versus Georgia's were upheld. Uh, for it, it was based on different state statutes. So obviously different analysis, different reasoning because everyone's state statute for death penalty is so, at this time was so bonkers different that like no one fucking knew it was chill. For example, even though someone's death penalty sentence was upheld under Florida's sentencing procedures, okay, that were modified after Furman, the court found that North Carolina's mandatory death sentences for first-degree murder were unconstitutional. Thank God. Imagine that. Literally mandatory. Mandatory. First degree. Literally first degree. That's it. I mean, I'm not saying that first-degree murder isn't bad and horrible. Totally. Period. Right? But like, damn, we're just... <laughs> North Carolina said, let's clean house. Like, <laughs> do not fuck around. You're going to find the fuck out. And the Supreme Court said, okay, let's tone it down. Let's bring it down several levels. Okay? That's just to give you context, all right? Death penalty is death penaltying. But Greg doesn't really give a fuck about all this context, right? Troy Greg is like, well, holy fuckaroo. All right? He's like, what in the fuck? What in the skedaddle? What in the flip did he do that day? Our boy Greg is sent to a maximum security prison in Georgia at Reedsville. Okay, Georgia State Prison, Reedsville, Georgia. And on his block, on his row, if you will, other death row inmates, are are some other characters, are a cast and crew, if you will, of this movie. This includes Carl Isaacs, who you met in the beginning. He was brutal. Carl Isaacs was fucking around and everyone was finding out. The escape that I just told you about was not his first. And yes, Isaacs was transferred the morning of, okay, in a coincidence that I would have definitely thrown myself out of a window over. But he successfully escaped from a prison in Maryland in 1973. So just seven years prior with two other inmates. Okay. He always has buddies. He's Regina George of the prison breaks. Okay. While on the run at that time, he and the two other escapees picked up his brother, Billy. The gang then kidnapped and murdered 19-year-old Richard Millard in Miller in Maryland. They stole his car and made their way to South Georgia, where during an attempted robbery, they killed five family members in their home, then kidnapped, raped, and murdered a sixth, Mary Alday. This guy is a motherfucker, if you will. He is said to be responsible for at least 13 murders, some unconfirmed, obviously. So yeah, he sucks. Okay, he sucks. He's brutal. He's crazy. He's nuts. He becomes the ringleader very fast. The next member of our cast and crew is a man named Timothy Wesley McCurkadale, also on death row at that prison. He was a member of the Outlaws Motorcycle Club. He spent much of his free time hanging out on the Strip, quote-unquote, in an area of Atlanta today known as Midtown. He had an apartment with his girlfriend, Bonnie Sakaw, his infant daughter, and a teenager named Linda Deering. On the evening of January 16, 1974, McCurkadale, with an accomplice known only as Leroy, had crossed paths with Donna Dixon and her friend in a bar. After controversy, about $50 and Dixon and her friend accepting drinks from black men in the bar. McCurkadale, Sakal, Leroy, and Dixon took a cab to the Moreland Avenue apartment. Once there, he smashed her in the face with his fist, tied her hands and feet, gagged her with a rag, and beat her with the buckle of his belt over the next several hours. Trigger warning, McCurkadale raped and tortured Dixon, burning her with cigarettes, slicing her with razor blades, biting her flesh, and pouring salt into her rooms. She was raped and sodomized by Leroy and McCurkadale, who eventually strangled her to death, then broke her arms and legs to tuck her body into a trunk, then went to sleep. McCurkadale dumped her body on a rural road, rural road south of Atlanta. Based on a tip, police arrested McCurkadale the next day. He showed no remorse and still wore the blood-soaked clothes from the murder. His reason was that he wanted to teach Dixon a lesson about associating with black men. So burning in hell, all seven gates of it, 
realms, levels. Prison was too kind. So, so that's Mercurka Dale. That is Mercurka fucking Dale. Okay. Uh, but one important part, one important note, one important fact about him, he is a member of the Outlaws Motorcycle Club. What is the Outlaws? You might be thinking, is this like a fun romance novel, right? Motorcycle gang mafia moment, right? I do adore those. I love a trash romance flick. I love a cheesy cover. Okay. Swoon. That is not this. Those are not these. The Outlaw Motorcycle Club is an international outlaw motorcycle club founded in McCook, Illinois in 1935. The Outlaws Motorcycle Club is the oldest outlaw biker club in the world. In the world. From the time I guess bikes became a thing. I'm not sure if they're including like literal pedal bikes. I think they should. I can imagine that there were some biker gangs from the time of the invention of the bicycle. The bike was invented in 1869. I just, you Googled it. So, I mean, unless people got their shit together in like 60, 70 years, okay, and went on like Rico-ass crime sprees, racketeering, criminal enterprises, okay, on a literal two-wheeler, a little huffy moment, maybe a beach cruiser. Oh, my God. Mine would, my club would be called the Beach Cruisers. That would be so sick. That would be tough as hell. Sorry, but now I'm brainstorming. Now this really is a Rico. They're the oldest, 1935, all right, in the fucking world, which is which is kind of tough. That's kind of hard. That goes fucking hard, all right? I'm not saying they're cool, okay? Don't be obnoxious. Being the oldest in the world's tough, okay? With a membership of approximately 1,700 and 275 chapters located in 23 countries, the Outlaws Motorcycle Club is also the third largest in the world behind the Hells Angels and the Banditos. The club is designated an organized crime syndicate by numerous law enforcement and international intelligence agencies, including the United States Department of Justice, the Criminal Intelligence Service Canada, and Europol. Fun facts, unfun facts, but kind of ridiculous facts, okay, that'll make you um, disrespect them a little bit, okay, which I love to do. Respect is due and earned, and there is no due and owing respect here. (laughs) These fucking nerds. (laughs) To be eligible for Outlaws membership, applicants must be white men over the age of 21. Lame. Uh, never heard that one before. Everyone's so creative. Can we like do a different fucking criteria for shit? Oh my fucking God. Everyone's like, oh, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. It's been broke. Get better ideas. Okay. It's giving plain. It's giving mayo. It's giving white walkers. It's giving milk crickets. It's giving no purpose flour. I'm not sorry. You have to be white man over the age of 21 and also be in possession of an American-made motorcycle of at least 750 cc. These are real requirements. This is not just a fifth-grade bullying group of kids going, you can't join our club unless you have a blue shirt, right? Yeah. Outlaws in the United States and Canada are essentially limited to riding Indian, Victory, and Harley-Davidson motorcycles, which are most common in the club. Outside of North America, however, this rule has been relaxed. Allow this is so stupid. Allowing the members to ride motorcycles manufactured in any country, provided they're in the chopper style. <laughs> it they're Regina George as fuck. Okay, this is me. Literally, Winsy's We Were Pink. Like, please. Do they know? Do you think they they watched that movie? Please tell me that they have. Tell me that someone's girlfriend showed them, put it up on the big screen. And then threw up a slideshow and said, okay, so here are the exact parallels. Like Freakonomics, Mean Girls, Outlaws, exactly the fucking same. The following five criteria are considered when evaluating an aspiring Outlaws member. One, owns and rides a Harley Davidson. Two, is competent in the mechanics of motorcycles. Three, (laughs) lives a lifestyle congruent with biker subculture and quote, 
treats other righteous bikers as bros <laughs> is viewed by society as masculine in outlook, behavior, and sexual orientation. <laughs> Oh my, it sounds like a bit. This sounds like an SNL skit. It's not. They are the third largest and oldest biker gang in the world. And this is their, their shtick. Masculine in outlook, behavior, and sexual orientation. Spoiler alert. Clutch my pearls. No way. And five does not conform to quote worldly values, but instead conforms to the lifestyle of the club. Gang gang. Okay. You're with the shits or you're not with the shits, all right? Lean with it, rock with it. So this, you know, part-time clown show is, is the outlaws, are the outlaws. That's who they are. As you can imagine, uh, they're in some criminal things. They do some crimes. They perform some enterprising. The outlaws are classified by various law enforcement agencies in the United States as one of the, quote, big four motorcycle gangs, along with the Banditos, the Hells Angels, and the Pagans. The Department of Justice contends the club is involved in organized crime, including drug trafficking, extortion, money laundering, prostitution rings, weapons trafficking, and violent acts directed at rival clubs. One recurring allegation is that the outlaws are responsible for the production and distribution of methamphetamine law enforcement and intelligence agencies internationally, including the Criminal Intelligence Service of Canada and Europol, also consider the outlaws a criminal organization. United States law enforcement officials have filed many a time RICO charges against some of these outlaw members uh, and had had mixed results, right? Because when you're running enterprises, okay, you got some cash, you got some moolah. There's some good lawyers sometimes. And sometimes good lawyers kind of pop off. We kind of eat. Kind of eat the fuck down. I don't know. And I'm not saying it's good. Okay, I'm not saying it's good. I'm just saying, right? Like, these are just facts. Members have continuously denied that the outlaws are an organized crime syndicate, asserting that the club is simply a group of motorcycle enthusiasts who live a non-conventional lifestyle and described allegations by investigators and prosecutors as exaggerated which means definitely they're doing all of that shit. <laughs> a saying commonly used by the members of the Outlaws Club is, quote, Outlaws we are, Rico we're not. That goes hard. Fuck. I'm so pissed. I'm so fucking mad. It's like being mad. Like it's like, it's like how I'm so pissed that the Catholic Church has such a vibe with the stained glass and the the outfits, the theme, the moment. I'm pissed about that because they don't deserve it. That's for fucking sure. But I cannot lie and deny that, that it eats the fuck down. This, okay, them being the oldest in the fucking world and the third largest in the fucking world and that their fucking slogan is, quote, outlaws we are, Rico we're not, eats the fuck down. And their leader, one of their leaders, okay, again, they have like a fucking million chapters. One of their main leaders in one of their chapters, when he was tried for some shit, okay, had to testify, whatever. And he was, he came in like a beautiful fucking like Armani fucking suit into court. And he literally laughed on, on the stand on trial. He literally said the words, outlaws we are, Rico, we're not like that. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You ate that one thing. You ate that one fucking thing. You ate that single one thing. But after that, fuck y'all. Because one of your members is several probably, but one for sure. This Mc McDonald had a farm. His last name's hard to pronounce. What a fuck. And now we're back to finishing our starting lineup. Okay. For our crew members at Georgia State Prison on death row. On death Reezy, who all became quite good homies. We have Greg. We have Isaacs, our Regina George ringleader. We have McCorkadale, motherfuck, outlaws, motherfucker. And now we have David Gerald. David Gerald was convicted of kidnapping, beating, and attempting to rape a minor female when he was only 15. When he was 18, he kidnapped and murdered a young bank teller, Mala Still. 
in Lawrenceville on Christmas Eve, 1973. According to his initial confession, Mrs. Still had parked outside a grocery store and entered to shop. When she returned to her vehicle, he slid into the passenger seat, wielding a 45 caliber pistol he had stolen days before. He forced her to drive to a rural location where he forced her to disrobe. He attempted to rape her but could not. So he had her redress, then shot her three times, killing her instantly. He then drove her car around, abandoned it, and sold the weapon to a friend of his friend. What a moron. When the firearm owner reported his gun stolen and the caliber matched the murder weapon, police connected Gerald to the crime, and he was soon apprehended and confessed to the crimes. He was convicted and sentenced to death and sent to Reed's Field. The final main player that we have to make up our starting five is Johnny Johnson. Johnny Johnson was from a broken home in South Carolina. He dropped out of school in the 10th grade and joined the army. He was soon discharged for drug use. In 1974, he and his accomplice, Jerry Sprouse, traveled to Savannah to see a ZZ Top concert, but the event was sold out. He and his friend decided they had consumed excessive drugs and liquor, so they opted to stay in Savannah for the night. They encountered Suzanne Edenfield and another girl at a traffic light and asked them to join them and smoke a joint. Afterward, when the girls attempted to leave, Sprouse pulled a gun and forced them into his car. The women were taken to a remote area where Sprouse tried to rape the friend but couldn't, then shot her. She survived. Edenfield was raped and shot fatally. Sprouse and Johnson returned to South Carolina where they burned their car and fled to Canada. They were captured days later when they, were, when they returned to South Carolina. They were tried and sentenced to death. Sprouse and Johnson were also former prison escapees. Apparently the 70s... We're a loosey-goosey, Cheeto-in-the-fucking-lock-on-the-door type of situation, okay? And I am not saying that everyone's perfect, but if your intent is to keep some people in, these really shitty criminals, and I say really shitty criminals, meaning like you sold the gun that you fucking killed someone with to a friend of a friend, right, that you had stolen to and that he's going to report missing, like... Y'all fled to Canada after you murdered, attempted murder one, murdered another girl, uh, and then came back to South Carolina. Why'd you come back? What's in South Carolina? Like, th these are more, these are moronic asswipe fuckheads, okay? Genuinely to their core. They're dumb, they're bad, they're stupid. Lawyers will tell you, just like the show, how to get away with murder, okay? Yes, that's like a bit of an over exaggeration, but like, when our job is to know everything about the shit, that we are defending people from or on the flip side, like prosecuting people for, we know when someone like almost got it, damn, almost got it or whatever. Right. Or like did a good job. This is grade school shit. This is kindergarten. This is Looney Tunery. This is clown shoes, if you will. And yet these motherfuckers are waltzing out of these prisons left, right, back forward these five men had all converged somehow some way on the maximum security prison in reedsfield the escape plot the escape plan itself had been conceived by isaacs or regina george several years prior and it required the cooperation and help of a whole lot of fucking people side characters okay non-playable characters we're gonna call them all right crew the guy boom operator right the sound motherfucker some choreography everybody okay so the five people could get out but there were like 40 fucking people who were like let me like throw you a bone okay despite the fact that isaacs had been plotting this for years okay years and years he had been really festering on this escape plan this escape plot received a bit of help, a bit of a boost, if you will, in 1978, when a successful lawsuit brought by inmates forced the addition of fire escapes on the building's exterior walls. The plan was to dress as guards and walk out the doors to those fire escapes to freedom. Okay? Sounds great in theory. Execution that's a lot of moving parts, right? How do we get there? Well, I'll tell you. James Gayhart, a corrupt prison guard, let the inmates make a mold of his badge. 
The inmates then created fake badges from cardboard, metal, smuggled paint, and cellophane from cigarette packs. A minor child connected to Gerald visited and hid hacksaw blades in the handle of a portable radio. The prisoners would call the guards to a particular cell that engaged them in conversation while Gerald drew the uniforms on a piece of paper. They each ordered pajamas from JCPenney in the same color as the guards' uniforms and lined them with prison shirts. You can order shit, mail order. They have prime to prison like your kid, like you're kidding. Back then for sure. Back then for fucking sure. Dyes for the pants were mailed to George Dungy, a co-conspirator of Isaac's and an occupant of the same cell block. The group had been unable to replicate the shoulder, shoulder patches worn by the guards, so they found an alternate plan. Former Outlaw Motorcycle Club member Richard Apgard, who had access to the location of the patches, was coerced and threatened, so he smuggled the patches hidden in cans of talcum powder to the potential escapees on death row. Over time, the co-conspirators had cut through three sets of bars with the hacksaws that that minor child had snuck in, and fashion ropes from bedsheets. The final piece of the puzzle for the escape was the car. On a Sunday afternoon, McCorkadale's mother and aunt visited. They left a car, a blue 1971 Plymouth Fury, in the parking lot. The pair returned early in the morning of the planned escape and found the getaway car to have a flat tire. Imagine. If I broke my ass out of fucking maximum security, Georgia ass prison, death row motherfucking situation and a flat fucking tire is keeping me down, lights out, just shoot me. What in the fuck? But no, okay? These hoes were loyal, apparently. And in a strange twist of fate, the pair visited a barracks for the Georgia State Patrol across the street and an employee from there came back to the prison parking lot with them and changed the tire. So they probably had like no fucking time. Okay. It's implied here in this iteration of the story. Like they came the morning of the escape to like basically I'm pretty sure like make sure the fucking car is still there. And they're like, oh, fuck, there's a fucking flat tire. Like we got like 20 fucking minutes. Like let's figure it out. And they literally went across the fucking street, went to the goddamn police station. That's kind of cunty, I think, to literally be like, hey, do you mind helping me change a tire? I'm a poor woman. And they were like, yeah, sure, 100%. And they did. Okay, so they changed the fucking tire. The ladies told the guards it wouldn't start, so they were leaving it until someone could return with them to repair it. In the car were multiple changes of clothes for each inmate involved, as well as cash. July 28th, 1980, in the early morning hours, it was go time. As you already heard, Isaac's began to work his way through the cut bars toward the escape route. He heard an elevator coming to his floor, so he had to backtrack, and his ass got transferred. The ringleader is out. But the four others said goodbye and successfully left. They put on their homemade uniforms and badges and made their way to the fire escape and eventually the front gate. Gerald got to the car first, then Greg, then Johnny Johnson. A guard detained McCurkadale. Gerald pulled the car out of the parking lot, then circled back in to pick up McCurkadale, whose answers had satisfied the guard. He's like, hey, fellow guard, what are you doing? And he was like, just like shooting the shit, having a smoke. That's what I would say. It was now around 8.30 a.m. They got on the highway, headed toward Reedsville, then Interstate 16 to eventually pass through Atlanta. They made their first stop in Claxton to change into the clothes left for them in the car, while they were there, Greg called reporter Charles Postel, bragging that they had indeed escaped. Greg told Postel that they were headed to Jacksonville, Florida as a possible diversionary tactic. To this day, nobody knows why Greg made that telephone call. Call, wow, call. Um, there was no rhyme or reason. He wanted to be sensational. He wanted everyone to know that it was him. Which is odd because you're on the run. Postel called the Department of Offender Rehabilitation in Atlanta to check if there had been an escape. When they, when told there had not, he hung up. A few minutes later, he called the prison directly. The warden's office assured him that they had checked and there was no escape. He hung up. But after receiving a second call from the inmates on the run, Postel's suspicions were confirmed because the call was not collect. 
which is the usual mode for calls from prison. Postel again called the warden's office, and he said, check again. The warden sent another guard to check again, and this time the escape was confirmed. And yes, all hell broke loose. This was approximately four hours since the four had walked out of the prison gates on their own free will in their brand new uniforms. They had quite the head start. Once the escape was realized, word spread quickly through the region. The Atlanta, Georgia newspaper headline screamed, quote, four murderers flee from Reedsville. The escaped inmates were called a violent clique of racists. Fact. The public was on the highest of alerts, but authorities were at a loss as to where to search for the escapees. They could have gone anywhere. It's the South. Okay, there are a lot of roads that lead a lot of different places. Authorities focused on the Southeast, primarily Georgia and South Carolina. Newspapers shared the danger to the public that the escapees presented with their head start. The area where they could be was vast. Gerald, one of our murderers on the run, recalls, quote, I'm glad Carl Isaacs didn't leave with us. People would have been hurt somewhere down the road. I just thank God he was on that list of the first to go to Jackson that morning. I hate to think of what may have happened that day if he'd left with us. I wasn't ready to take a hostage to get where I was going to go. Like I said, Isaacs is the Regina George. Um, She doesn't give a fuck. Okay. She would have killed everyone and their mother and then their father and then their mother again. Back to our four inmates, our four escapees, our four Houdinis, okay? They stopped at a bar because, of course, they fucking did. Our Fab Four stopped at a bar on Peachtree Street in Atlanta that Mercadale knew, looking for fellow outlaw members. However, that bar was closed. They had beers in another bar because, of course, then decided to head to Charlotte in search of a man named William Flamont, better known by his street name, quote, Chains. Chains is a fellow Outlaws member and a former sniper in Vietnam. He was reportedly the leader of the Outlaws chapter there and was the person who discovered five murdered bodies in the Charlotte Outlaw clubhouse the year prior. Mercadale thought he would assist him and his three accomplices, his three escapees. He thought maybe Chains could lend him a hand. As they were headed up to I-85, a vibration from the right front wheel caused them to stop. Of fucking course. It's always a fucking tire problem. The moment you don't, you, you cannot afford one. They discovered that a single lug nut held on to the wheel. They removed a lug nut from the other three wheels to the right front and continued toward Charlotte. Ironically, the stop was near where Greg killed two men and was only a few miles from Gerald's parents' home. It's scary, chills, full, full circle, terrifying, horrible. Gerald says he did not contact his family, however. He intended to travel to Canada to connect with an older woman that had been writing to him. Cute. The group arrived in Charlotte around 6 p.m. The old yellow tavern near Charlotte was in an area known as Sin City. It seemed like a haven for prison escapees, apparently. Frequented by Charlotte's biker crowd, it was an ideal spot for the escapees to connect with their contacts, relax over some beers, and shoot some pool while they pondered their next moves. Okay, shooting the shit. With their biker gang bros who are all white and over 21 and who have a certain type of motorcycle and wear pink on Wednesdays. The evening soon turned ugly. Need I remind you, this is the same day of their escape. Okay, they rolled up into Charlotte around 6 p.m., right? They had a scopade at 8.30 a.m. This is the evening. This is the night. These are the night owls partying, their booties off, having a brewski, our death row rowers. And, of course, who wouldn't want to use that freedom to fuck around? And fingers crossed you don't find out. Well, someone did. Gerald in a 2022 interview, stated, quote, He died because he didn't do what was asked of him. He was told more than once to stay away from the biker's women. The woman who was tending the bar had Troy's attention, and he was trying to talk her into stepping outside with him. Police later confirmed that Greg had been inappropriate with a server there who was the wife 
of Outlaws member James Butch Horn. Mercadale advised Greg to stop, fearing any trouble would reveal their whereabouts. Greg persisted. Another biker, Ronald Spider Burr, later told police that he witnessed Mercadale beat Greg after the confrontation about his conduct with the woman in the bar. And she's probably just standing there like, I, can I just do my job? I'm just trying to serve you a vodka tonic. Like, I don't know what all this is about, but another hullabaloo blame it on me. Fine. Hmm. Horn was also seen hitting Greg, but most injuries allegedly came from Mercadale. A decision was made to leave the bar, so the group took Greg, still alive, but barely at this point, put him in the car and left. Greg soon died from the injuries he sustained in the savage beating. Yeah, he was beat to death. Inside slash outside this bar by Mercadale and Horn, but mostly Mercadale, according to witness accounts, which, you know, reliable or not, that's the account we got. Two of the escapees dropped his body in the river. On Tuesday, swimmers found the body submerged in the waters of South Carolina's Catawba River, 10 miles away, which brings us back to the beginning of our story. Initially, the two circumstances did not seem connected. This body that came afloat and these escapees that were, again, still on the fucking loose, okay, when this body was found, by the way, they were still looking for the fugitives at this point, including when the body was found, and the police did not know that this body was one of the fugitives. They had no fucking idea, okay? It's also the 70s, right? Like, what are we going off of to ID these bodies? Not much, Props not much. Hours later, authorities received a tip, likely from one of the bikers from the night before, that the other three escapees had holed up inside a house rented by Flamont. Remember, Flamont is Chains, okay? This house is Chains's, right? Our boy Chains. Our outlaws member Chains. Our allies leader Chains. Police surveilled the house and flew over it with a helicopter. They saw the suspected escape car underneath covers at the back of the house and then surrounded it. When Chains left to get food for the escapees, he was stopped and arrested. Police then addressed the three escapees from outside, right? Hostage sitch, except there's no hostage. There's just a sitch demanding that they come out. They delayed entry as they weren't sure if the fugitives were armed the three inside knew they had no real option for a successful ski-daddle escape number two from the house. So, um, yeah, they held on for as long as possible, for about six fucking hours, actually. They fucking sat there and, and twiddled their thumbs and probably drank a shit ton of beer. Finally, the decision was made to fire tear gas into the structure. When the canisters hit and discharged, the three inmates ran out, stumbling, bumbling, tear gassing, and were captured. No weapons were found, but the police did find explosives stashed in the freezer. The missing inmate was soon connected to the body found in the river as Greg. But mind you, the three inmates who were captured, okay, escapees, they didn't tell them about Greg. They didn't tell him about his whereabouts, anything like that. They were looking for him. Like they thought he was right on the run, keep alert. Oh no, he was in a river for hitting on a woman. That's the outlaws for you. Over the next several days, the three captured inmates refused extradition back to Georgia, but a court eventually ordered it. James Butch Horn was charged with the murder of Greg, actually. Not McDonald had a farm, Mercadale, whatever his name is, okay? The outlaws member, all right, the husband of the hot mamacita at the bar, uh, he was charged with the murder of Troy Gregg. Uh, but very quickly and promptly, those charges were dropped due to a lack of evidence, right? Even me retelling this, what Evie do we have? Oh, we got a body. We know how he died for sure, right? It's the 70s. We got some uh, eyewitnesses for sure. What are they a part of? Oh, I don't know. A gang, a motorcycle gang, the oldest and third largest in the world. Thank you very much. Do you think they're speaking? I don't know. I would believe not. Just a guess. Regardless, notwithstanding, Butch was never tried for the murder of, of Troy Gregg. Um, in fact, no one ever was. 
that murder is technically still unsolved, untried, uncalled for. No one has answered to it. Troy Gregg was beaten to death within hours of accomplishing an absolutely Houdini escape act, the first of its kind from a maximum security prison in Georgia, not just a maximum security prison, the death row block of the maximum security prison. A W to an L rapidly, rapidly. And then to have your murder never, never officially formally be solved. That's tough. That's tough. That's tough. But um, what is tough is also karma. You can call it tough. You can call it karma. Whatever. Eye for an eye, right? He did kill two people. In a very savage, horrible way. Everyone did in this case, apparently, right? Like Jesus Christ. But uh, yeah. And by the way, the three escapees were never tried for their escape as they already had maximum sentences. So it would have just been, I'm assuming, a waste of resources. But would have been fun, I think, to see the evidence come out in trial, right? Not fun as in like, yay, we're happy about these murderers. But like, I love I love an escape. Like, I love an escape. And except for Troy Gregg, there weren't any injuries, okay? And they definitely didn't get away. You know, I mean, they asked, got sent back. But God, wasn't it fun to like, dress up in a uniform and put some patches on and hacksaw some bars with a tool that a miner smuggled in. I mean, look, the drama, the drama, the Shawshank, the Shawshank redemption of it all. Okay. Carl Isaacs died by lethal injection on May 6th, 2003. He spent 30 years on death row before his execution. The GBI said Isaacs, quote, had his hand in every aspect of that escape. Of course, he's Regina. He was indicted for the escape but never prosecuted. The 1988 film Murder One was based on the all-day murders, which he committed. John Alderman, who I don't think I spoke about before because he's irrelevant, right? He's a he's a lame character. Um, the inmate who at the last minute chose not to join his fellow escapees, escapees, okay? He basically chickened out. He was like, no, never mind. Uh, he was executed in 2008 after serving 33 years on George's death row. Mercadale McCord... Wait. I think I've been saying his name wrong this entire time, which I don't give a fuck about because fuck this guy, but Mick Corkadale. His name is Mick Corkadale. Mick Corkadale. McCorkadale was executed in 1987. Period. Good. I'm glad. I hope it hurt. His aunt, Minnie Hunter, and mother, Tony Joe Hopper, were indicted for abetting the escape. Johnny Johnson, Johnny J, is currently sitting alive in a prison in Augusta, Georgia that mainly houses inmates with chronic medical issues. Johnson has declined to speak of his escapes or other crimes. David Gerald is in Washington State Prison in Davisboro. He was a vital component of the content of the story and openly expressed remorse for his past crimes. Since his escape, he has become certified in HVAC repair, acquired his GED, and has voluntarily undergone therapy to address his issues. Um... What did David do again? Um, yeah, attempted rape and murder. Fuck you. Rape and murder. Just issues, right? That men have. Just issues that you have. A few months after the escape in 1980, when four inmates left Georgia's prison and were dragged back, the ringleader, the planner, the schemer of all of that. The reason why that those guys were able to get a few brewskis with some bros in their motorcycle fits had some words to say. Isaacs, who again had been transferred and missed his opportunity to see his plan come to fruition, was sitting sad and pissed at his Jackson facility watching these motherfuckers go free and then fuck it all up. In an interview with a reporter months later after the escape in 1980, the reporter asked Isaacs if he had a message for his fellow escapees, almost fellow escapees. He responded, quote, yeah, tell them I'd like to kick their asses for being out that long and not getting a piece and wasting somebody. 
end quote. Yeah, I'm glad he didn't get out either. I'm with Gerald on that one. I'm glad about that, actually. That concludes episode 14 of our Rebuttal Podcast. I jumped right the fuck into it, okay? Follow us everywhere on Instagram, on Twitter. We are on YouTube. Watch me do this on YouTube, okay? The facials, the eyes, the squinting. Simba makes an appearance sometimes. It's a vibe. It's a moment. And stay safe. If you're going to escape... Put the phone down. See you next time. Love you guys. Kisses, besos. Always, always. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire. Huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.